1: Good afternoon listeners, this is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every week uh, to promote and to defend public education. Public education for us is education that's public in purpose and outcome. And when we talk a bit later about BODSCI 2.0, we want it to be public in purpose and outcome, not all over the shop with privatisation in the mix. We also believe that public education should above all be public in access to all children. There should be no fees, no entrance requests, no entrance requirements for any child or parent or teacher or any other employer. We believe too that it should be public in ownership and control. The whole notion of private-public partnerships is anathema to true public education. As well as that, it should be the only one that's publicly subsidised or publicly funded because it's the only one that's publicly accountable. As our governments are finally realising, they are finally realising that there's billions and billions of dollars going out from the public treasury and when they're asked to account for it and there's nothing to show for it, particularly in education, uh, it's a problem. It's a very real problem. And for that reason, they have uh, produced Agonski 2.0. Now, last week we talked about the people who are going to be on the panel because the people on a panel... Uh, that is set up by the government, tell you an awful lot about what the end result's going to be. And Robert will be telling you more about this because we've got further information in the last week about the people on the panel. So we do always like here at 3CR to keep you up to date. But in the last week, Gonski Terms of Reference have also come to light. So we have a press release, 714 on Gonski 2.0 Terms of Reference, No Extra Money Allowed. The Gonski 2.0 Terms of Reference essentially require the panel to provide advice on how to get better value for the same bundle of money. That is, it's 2.0 no money, not money. Given the international evidence, and there's quite a bit on that, Uh, there's an admission that current funding measures have not improved student outcomes. But there's absolutely no intention to increase funding levels, only a wish to twitch around the edges. Now, dogs could have told Australian governments that pouring funding into myriads of new sectarian schools was always guaranteed to achieve glaring inequalities and falling educational standards for more and more money. Dogs could also tell genuine democratic governments that Finland and other countries have the answer when they provide sole public funding to public schools which are free, secular and universal. But Gonski 2.0 will not be looking at root causes of the current crisis or obvious solutions. So there'll be zero real solutions and zero looking at root causes. But Gonski and Boston, who are on this panel, are very experienced and very skilful courtiers, and they've no doubt had some, uh, put into these, uh, input into these terms of reference. The private systems have taken the governments and Australian taxpayers for a long ride, for a long time, including Gonski and Boston, the courtiers. The only paragraph in these terms of reference that indicate that the private sector may be held a bit more accountable, losing very little money mind you, is the following. They have been asked to propose relative transparency, sorry, propose related transparency and accountability measures that support the effective monitoring, reporting and application of investment. But don't worry, that statement, which talks about transparency and accountability, is immediately diluted in the terms of reference by the following. The review will not reconsider the calculation of Commonwealth or state funding for schools, which was the subject of the 2011 Review of Funding for Schooling, also chaired by Mr Gonski, because the Turnbull Government has accepted the fundamental recommendations of the 2011 Review regarding needs-based distribution of funding, and is now acting on the advice that further work be undertaken on quality reforms now the full terms of reference are reproduced on our website and you might be interested in some of them they start off uh, sounding a bit like kevin donnelly i'm afraid they start start off saying that evidence from organisations such as the oecd is clear that simply providing more funding for schools does not in itself improve student outcomes. To achieve the best educational return on investment, we must look at how money is best used and not just how much is spent. Well, the Australian Education Union would, of course, question that because the funding that has come through to state secondary schools in particular and been used for disadvantaged students has had a tremendous effect. But um according to uh this these terms of reference, this is borne out in Australia, that is, that funding has extra funding hasn't improved outcomes, where total government funding for schools has doubled since nineteen eighty eight, yet Australian students' performance in national and international assessments has declined in real and relative terms. Now there is some truth in that. But then we get a whole paragraph on how wonderful the Turnbull government's school funding reforms guarantee has been. Well, I'm not sure that the Labor Party or the Greens or uh, the Australian Education Union would agree uh, with all of this, but the dogs have noted and still note that this would be a much better outcome if they took over the private schools and rationalised them and got on with the job of educating Australia rather than dividing our children on sectarian lines. Now, the Turnbull government, we're told, has established this review to achieve educational excellence in Australian schools. Well, we all know that that could have been written by the private sector because they go on and on and on about educational excellence. Uh, and it's going to be chaired by Mr David Gonski AC to provide advice. Now, it's only advice on how this extra Commonwealth funding should be used by Australian schools and school systems to improve school performance and student achievement. So there's the question of what this extra funding actually is, I suppose. There, we're just told that it's generous indexation of 3.56% and follows on from the $1.2 billion in new funding budgeted in 2016-17. Well, I thought that there was something, more, many more billions than that, that the Labor Party's been talking about, but we won't get into facts and figures at this stage. But the reviews going to report to the Prime Minister and Commonwealth Minister for Education and Training and it's going to examine evidence and make recommendations on the most effective teaching and learning strategies and initiatives to be deployed. In particular, the review will focus on effective and efficient use of funding to improve student outcomes and Australia's national performance. As measured by national and international assessments of student achievement, uh, they're going to advise and report on, the, on improving the preparedness of school leavers to succeed in employment, further training or higher education. In other words, there's concern about the extraordinary dropout rate and the uh, loss amongst the next generation. They also are to uh, recommend or report on and advise Improving outcomes across all cohorts of students, including the disadvantaged and vulnerable students. And also, ah, this is Kevin Donnelly again, academically advanced students. They're called gifted students. So the gifted students are also going to be dealt with. Now, what we've already talked about is now in the next part of the Terms of Reference to support the recommendations of review will also, and please note it's an also, it's really uh, not right up there front where it should be, There's to provide advice on related institutional governance arrangements to ensure the ongoing identification and implementation of evidence-based actions to grow and sustain improved student outcomes over time and propose the related transparency and accountability measures that support the effective monitoring, reporting and application of investment and it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see whether or not Mr Gonski and Ken Boston and the others have got the intestinal fortitude to take on what the private schools have been doing with the Greeds policy, the needs policy that they put into the Greeds policy for the last 50 odd years. But they are not allowed to reconsider the calculation of Commonwealth or state funding for schools. So no more money. Uh, lots and lots of motherhood statements about what teachers should be doing, perhaps a bit of teacher bashing, perhaps a bit of bureaucrat bashing, uh, and it's the question of which bureaucrats they'll be bashing. And uh, yes, now this is going to be an independent panel, we're told. Well that's news, I've never known an independent panel yet that's been set up by the government and they're going to draw on education experts and Robert will be talking about them a little bit later and there's also going to be academics and practitioners with experience in education systems and teaching and learning methodologies internationally and within Australia. But notice the funding and the methods of funding are really not going to be under any real So it's still sector blind and what was set up in 2011 and the special deals, particularly the special deals with the Catholic Education Office, let's see what they do with them. They're on trial as far as the dogs are concerned and our governments have been on trial for a long, long time in education and their report sheets are not looking too good and they're worried about it. Their report sheets are not looking too good internationally. So uh, let's see what comes out of this smoke and mirrors exercise. But the dogs will be here to call the tune and to call it what what it really is. But let's have a bit of music and then over to Robert. (music)
0: Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on to AM dial and podcast on the www.3cr.org. Um, look, that was a gavotte by David Kinsella. Just something to break up um, our reviewing of education policy and thinking in Australia today. Um, as Jim promised, we're going to be talking about several things, mainly the... Well, not mainly, but in part, the makeup of the panel which will be deciding about how money gets distributed to schools in Australia—the the new what's called Gonski 2.0 panel—but we'll also be talking briefly about what the um, what, what the school resource standards are and what sector blindness is. These are words that are thrown around. Uh, it's about time, dogs listeners, got just a skinny on what all this actually means. Certainly in terms of school resource standards, SRS, it's a, it's a number, and we'll tell you what the number is um, after we've had a little bit of an examination of what's going on with this Gonski 2.0 panel. Now, the Gonski 2.0 panel is made up of representatives from the independent school sector, representatives from the Catholic school sector, and... Um, Yeah, some other people. There are no specific representatives of the state school sector, although there are two state school principals on the board as well, so that's a useful thing to note. However, the two private school sector advocates are professional advocates, and they'll be there in that capacity. So let's just go through them. Let's start with David Gonski. Um, I mean, there's a lot that people know about David Gonski. Um, and none of it, I suppose, by this type point, is uh, surprising. He describes himself as a courtier to power. Um, he gets put in. He's not an educator. He's got no education background whatsoever. He's uh, At Sydney Grammar School, that's the sum total of it. Yeah, no, he's, no that's right. He, he was on the board of Sydney Grammar School for yeah. some time. Um, I'm not sure if he still is. But um, he's not an educator. He has no particular expertise. He is very good, apparently, at um, running committees of advisor, advisement uh, for governments, um, both state and federal. Um, and he's the, he was the chair of the original review, of course, Mr Gonski. And he's also been the chancellor of the New, University of New South Wales uh, for 12 years and continues to be so. And actually, I take it back. He was not on the board of Sydney Grammar. He was the chairman and a trustee of Sydney Grammar School. He's been in that position for about 18 years. He went to
1: school there, I think, with uh, Mr Turnbull, They're
0: friends. Mm. They live near each other. You yeah, know, the Harpside <laughs> Mansion people. Wouldn't know. Never been there. But I'll, I'll take your word for it, Jane. <laughs> um, look, he's a lawyer by training. He's been involved in corporate advisory and governance issues for middle-sized companies for many years. He's a lawyer. Um, he, he solves problems in, in those regards. And I don't think we need to get into him anymore. Um, we also mentioned on our last week's program another panel member, Mr Terry Arcus, AM. Now, he's the founder and consultant of Port Jackson Partners Limited. He's the director of Sydney Symphony Orchestra and the chairman of Sydney Symphony Orchestra. He has no education background apart from the fact that he went to school. Um, he went to state schools, actually, and he specifically values the experience that he got here. We went into some detail about him. Um, and he seen, sent his children to state schools. He sent his children but to state schools. he lost school. one of his children. Yeah, which was a sad it's thing. He's a nice guy. So he has an interest in music. I don't know, don't know if losing a child qualifies you as a nice guy, but looking from the outside, he seems like a genuine person who, even though not an educator or an expert in education, has an active interest in, in, in um, perhaps the benefit of education for Australia. Uh, then there's Ken Boston. Um, now, we didn't talk in detail about Ken Boston. Ken Boston, I think, is the only person on the current review panel who was on the review panel last time. So the personnel has been a big shift and change. Uh, things have moved on since 2011. And Ken Boston is one of the things that hasn't moved on. Now, he's interesting. Um, Ken Boston has a record of active support for public education. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about Ken Boston when we start when we discuss what it is or what it isn't, when we start talking about sector blindness. But he's the chair of New South Wales Ministry Adv- Advisory Group on Literacy and Numeracy. He's a member of the original Gonski Review. He's a chief executive for the Qualifications and Curriculums Authority in England, or he was back in the early 2000s. And he was the Director General of Training in, in New South Wales. Um, and also the Managing Director of TAFE in New South Wales.
1: But he started off in Ballarat, and he was certainly sector blind when he was in Ballarat, I can tell you that.
0: And um, back in the 80s, he was actually Hmm. Director General of Education in South Australia Hmm. as well. So he is someone, uh, he is someone who knows about education, and that's been in fact his career. So he's on the panel about education funding, and he knows a bit about education. In fact, his career in education, has in fact, spans South Australia, um, Victoria and New South Wales and, of course, England. And he's contributed to the fields of primary, secondary, vocational and higher education across all sectors. And he's been a practitioner, research analyst, a policy advisor and a systems level chief executive um, at, 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 in educational institutions around the world. Has his particular interest covers curriculum design, qualification design, how you go about teaching, how you go about assessing, how you go about running schools, how you go about managing school systems, how you go about transitioning people in and out of teaching, um, how you go about leading in educational um, institutions, and how you ensure that various quality um, exists when it comes to education. So I reckon he'd be a decent person to have on the panel. Um, here at Dogs. He has demonstrated um, on a number of occasions a commitment to state education so he's a good bloke to have on it.
1: When he was in New South Wales he had every state school in in New South Wales. State schools are great schools and promoting public education on their fences. Uh, He really did come out as a state school person when he was there.
0: Hmm. Indeed. Well, let's move from him, um, who we've now examined in some detail, uh, to Ms Valerie Gould. Ms Valerie Gould is from Western Australia and she's the Executive Director of the Association of Independent Schools in Western Australia. Uh, she's a member of the ACARA board and she's also a member of the Superannuation Board, uh, concept on superannuation fund. So she's into superannuation and she's into education.
1: Gee, we've all got committee
0: sitters here.
1: They're all well, then, that's on. not surprising, <laughs> is it? I mean, because
0: I'm talking about members of a committee, so you're going to get, you're going to get committee cities, but I, yeah. I don't
1: think we'll get a dissenting
0: report out of this lot. Yeah, not quite sure. Well, let, let's keep going, because we didn't talk about Valerie last time. Uh, we only talked about her in a circumspect way. Uh, she comes from Western Australia, and she's been over there for 20 years. And in her own words, her focus has always been on supporting schools in their quest to improve student outcomes. I would suggest at that point... Mm. Um, Yes, what schools, where. Mm -hmm. She does in fact have, um, she has been working with Indigenous and Aboriginal schools in Western Australia for some time and she's managed four Indigenous Advancement Strategy Grants without mentioning how successful those things have been Mm -hmm. and without mentioning indeed if she's done that within the state sector or whether she's done it as part of um, independent schools dealing with Aboriginal students and Aboriginal issues and Aboriginal curriculum and indeed Aboriginal re-engagement. Um, It would, I would suggest to you that Indigenous education in Australia is our greatest shame. I mean, we'll sit here and talk about, you know, talk about schools in Richmond and Collingwood and aspirational parents fighting over the dead corpses of their neighbours to get their kids to the right school at the right time. Um, And we talk about that a lot here on the Dogs Program, but um, Indigenous education, um, when it comes to potential outcomes and what's going on out there in the bush. That is in fact our greatest shame and we... I actually apologise to our listeners because we don't actually spend enough time talking about it. This woman apparently has had a go. How successful I'm not quite so sure. I think we should do a bit more digging into that.
1: There have been a few Uncle Sams who've brought in the private sector up in the Gulf Country. Yeah. It? Yeah. Well, perhaps we should get some of our experts on 3CR in one day to talk about... But I think it's interesting Valerie.
0: Yeah, Valerie. Uh, Valerie... Um, And here's where you get to read between the lines. In Western Australia, she was a Senior Education Officer for Vocational Education at the Curriculum Council in Western Australia and for a number of years worked with schools, training providers and industry groups on the implementation and certification of VET in schools. Ah. This is where she's talking about the the mixing of private and public partnerships when it comes to VET, Vocational Education and Training, in schools and in other places. Um, vocational education and training in fact what used to be the old TAFE colleges in Australia are, well it's not just a shame, it's just a disaster and she's been part of that process um, and has survived out the other end without, without losing a job then um, she's obviously an operator Anyway, what she's done is including preparing students for the future, whether it's employment further education and training, blah, motherhood blah, blah. Motherhood statements. Really. Yeah, motherhood statements. Um, she's worked with diverse populations as part of the independent schools um, environment and has met the needs of each school and students in each school by sourcing appropriate resources and establishing support networks. Yeah, If you read what she writes about herself, there is a great deal of motherhood statements, which you would expect when someone's on someone's CV, and it is, of course, universally positive. Um but it seems to me that she does have a propensity to work in an environment where money is sourced both from private and public sources mm-hmm. for the purposes of the education of the children of Australia. Anyone who's doing that kind of job, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure whether they're in fact a useful person to have on a, a school review panel. But obviously um, there has to be, apparently, um, a representative of the independent school sector on the new Gonski panel, and she is it. Ms. Valerie Gould from Western Australia. I think we'll have to do a little bit more digging about her successor or otherwise at privatising stuff in Western Australia. That would be a very interesting bit of research. We might in, in, intend, we might undertake that. Another member of the panel, apart from whom I've mentioned, that's Boston, and Gonsky and Valerie, um, is Ms. Wendy Johnson. Now she's principal at the moment of an international high school in South Australia. It's a state high school, but it runs the International Baccalaureate, so it's a state high school for smart kids. Um, having had a look at that particular school's website, the socioeconomic status breakdown of that school, um, it's a very high percentage of students uh, from high and very high socioeconomic backgrounds. So it's one of those functional, select, semi-selective state schools that we are now seeing popping up all around Australia. They're the sort of Melbourne girls' high schools and the uh, the, the North Bourbons of the world in in the Melbourne context. That is, state schools who um, uh, functionally cherry-pick from other school zones to get the smartest kids because that's what the parents are choosing to do.
1: I find this very interesting, Robert, because I've noticed the word meritocracy resurfacing again and again in the last few weeks. Meritocracy uh, came out of the 19th century. It's the reason they went into state secondary education in the first place. But it was only for the few. It was only for those who had merit. Mm-hmm. And I remember Peter Board of the New South Wales Education Department back in 1905 saying that what we wanted was a meritocracy. But I thought that in the 1960s we'd gone wrong long before far, far, far away from that, that we were now interested in all of the children and that all of our children have gifts and all of our children should be given opportunities, educational opportunities, to do the best they can in life. I thought we got away from the whole meritocracy thing, but we seem to be going back into it.
0: Well, you, well I mean, I'm sure Ms Wendy Johnson would, would, would take argument with perhaps my brief characterisation of her school mm. and herself. Because she's principal of actually the largest, this is the, which she's principal of, the Glengarry International High School, is the largest secondary public school in South Australia. Mm. Almost 2,000 students. And those students are actually from 70 different countries. And it's post specialist programs for both gifted and talented students for the International Baccalaureate. So that's the bit that I'm, mm. I, I'm focusing oh, on yeah, here. Well, yeah. However, Glengarry is the only South Australian public school listed in the 100 top secondary schools in Australia. And it's been recognised in various, in various forums as a leading-edge school, principally because it involves itself as an international school doing international baccalaureate in South Australia. Mm. There's a few in Canberra, there's a few in Melbourne, there's a few in Sydney, mm. and she's, got, she's responsible for the school in South Australia that's doing it. There might be others, I don't know, but certainly the largest. Um, Nevertheless, she's taken the school from a, an average place to a good place in her, in her tenancy there as the principal, and I think she should, in fact, be praised for that. She's taken a state school, a good state school, and she's made it better. Before she was there, she had a number of positions, including a principal at a, a Victor Harbour High School, and she was a district superintendent in two highly disadvantaged metropolitan areas in South Australia, in the northern suburbs. And for our South Australian listeners, you'll probably know what I'm talking about. There is some social disadvantage, apparently, in the northern regions of um, Adelaide. And she's also worked as a policy developer responsible for phasing out corporal punishment and introducing new school discipline in South Australia. So she's been around for a while. <laughs> yeah, she was the person in South Australia responsible for stop, stopping, students beating, uh, stopping teachers from beating their kids.
1: Well, she sounds as if she might be a good committee sitter.
0: Well, she sounds like she's a good principal, too. Yeah. Um don't know. We'll, we'll see how that one goes. Yeah. We'll anyway, I'd like to go on to um, Dr. Lisa O'Brien, who we did some work on. We discussed her. She's the CEO of the Smith family. Oh,
1: she's a doctor, a mm, medical
0: doctor. She's a medical doctor, but she also has an interest in education. Mm. So, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out, just going back to Wendy, who I was talking about before, um, She does know her stuff in terms of education Mm. So is it appropriate that she should be on a Gonski panel? I don't think it's any reason why not Mm. Um, Yeah, she's an educator She she knows what education and perhaps indeed Even successful education is all about
1: However, we haven't come across yet Any ordinary teachers Or any teacher union representatives No, well there are not No ordinary teachers, nobody who's really at the coalface
0: No, I mean Dr Lisa O'Brien, we discussed in some detail uh, Last week Uh, Dr Lisa O'Brien is also a member of of the Gonski panel, and as I say, she needs the education, children-oriented programs as part of the Smith family. So she has an interest in education, but no particular qualifications. The qualifications, of course, are medical qualifications, and I hope she you know, we, we need more doctors. And so thank you very much for becoming one. Um, now I'm going to come to the representative um, on the new Gonski panel from the Catholic education sector, being the largest single private um, education sector in Australia which is why we have to keep talking about it, because they educate almost 30% of the population of the country. So they're the Catholic education system, so I should talk about Catholic people. And guess what? There's a Catholic person representing Catholics on the new Gonski panel. And she's the Executive Director of Queensland's Catholic Education Commission, and her name is Dr. Lee Ann Perry. She also has an Order of Australia, so she's a very nice person, I'm sure. Now, she's taught in both Catholic and state schools in Queensland, Including, my goodness, even North Queensland and New South Wales for almost 40 years. And she was principal of three schools, uh, secondary, um, and se- secondary schools that is, and in um, Queensland of course that's from years 5 to 12. And she was doing that work, so she was an ordinary teacher I suppose for a period of 25 years until mid-2015. So she actually has recent hands-on experience in leading and teaching schools, but she's there to represent the Catholic school system. Um, It's interesting. She's not a particularly high-powered representative, as far as I'm concerned, in the Australian Catholic education sphere. I mean, she's not a Stephen Elder, certainly. Um, She's not someone that's involved in in any particular high-level way in in, in the Catholic education office, but she's on the Gonski panel. Um, So I just watch that space. Um, Look, she's got all the appropriate qualifications. She's got a Bachelor of Education, Master of Education, Doctor of Education, um, and her thesis, by the way, was on risk and accountability. Any implications for school leadership? So, you know, and she's also a graduate of the Australian Institute of Directors. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of basic qualifications, I think it's appropriate that she should be there. But her perspective, of course, the reason she's put there is to defend the corner of the Catholic education office when it comes to this thing called sector-blind funding. Um, now, there's also one more person on the panel. That's Mr Michael Roberts, who we discussed again in some detail last year. Um, and he was, again, a principal in Queensland for 25 years, and he took the school from being average to being good. Um, it's an independent public school in Queensland. I think what that means is, back in the days in Victoria, we had these things called uh, schools of the future. Mm-hmm. Basically, you give all the school the money, you give the principal all the responsibility, and they sink or swim. They become independent, they can't call on the support of the department, uh, but neither are they controlled by the department. Principals can hire and fire at their own behest. Um, but he's, he's also um, he's got a honours degree in psychology, and obviously a degree, in, um, a, a degree in education, and he's an he's an executive director of Good to Great Schools Australia, which is, uh, for want of a better word. Um, an interesting organisation that relates to the betterment of state schools. Um, so, all in all, with all the people on the panel that we've now reviewed them all in, in some detail, it's an interesting mix, Gene. Um, it's not necessarily heartless. It's not necessarily something where go, oh, this, this, this thing has just by the fact that we know the people involved been stacked. Um, it's an interesting mix. And if Boston, as the Financial Review was suggesting, if Ken Boston's going to do and driving it, and Gonski himself takes a back seat, and there is, in fact, um, some hope for Australian education funding. But as I'm afraid Jean quite rightly pointed out, um, it's an advisory panel. I mean, if they come up with something that benefits state schools, that doesn't mean the government has to deal with it.
1: Well, let's see how, how, how much intestinal fortitude they have. That's my view. Um, when it comes to looking at the transparency and the accountability, particularly of the Catholic education Office. Yes, you're right. Sir. That mm. really is what Birmingham wants them to do. let to see how many goods uh, they deliver for Mr Birmingham.
0: Indeed. Um, we've been listening to the Dogs Program. We are the Defenders of Government Schools here on 3CR 855 on the dial. We'll return after these messages. Guess what? Thursdays, Talk Back With Attitude now starts at 10am. Why? Ring up and find out.
1: The Australian Unemployed Workers' Union invites you all to a rousing jam for Jobs and Justice concert on Sunday, July 30. Featuring the Horn Stars, Reds Under the Bed and Moreland City Marching Band at the Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall, Carlton from 2 to 5pm. For tickets, phone 9650-5699 or book online at bellaunion.com.au. $15 full, $10 concession. Raffles and prizes are part of the deal. For more info, contact unemployedworkersunion.com. Help protect the rights and dignity of unemployed workers and pensioners. Get along to Jobs and Justice. Bella Union, Sunday, July 3rd. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk.
2: It's free and we also provide free childcare at the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Bring
1: down the Bring down the For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm the
0: proud product of
2: a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded
0: secondary school education. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. If you're interested in what we've been talking about, please feel free to check us out at our website, which is www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But before um, those messages, I was promising we'd talk a little bit about exactly what this whole concept of sector blindness is, what it means, and if in fact it does exist, if it's a real thing or not. Um, the whole concept of sector blindness was something that was thrown at Gonski um, as a very mushy concept before he did his original view in 2011. The basic idea is... That well, actually I want to tell you the basic idea because Ken Boston, who was a member of the original panel, said this whole sector blindness wasn't an issue. It wasn't brought up. It was a made up term after they did the review. And Ken Boston, um, who was the original member of the Gonsky Panel, said the whole term sector blind was not used in the report at all. But he says, and I quote, it became useful and accurate nutshell description to describe the concept of needs-based funding applied to all individual schools, regardless of the sector of schooling which they belong. See so the idea of the model being sector-blind largely gained traction after the report, not during the report or before it. And um, I'm quoting there from Glenn Savage, who's a senior lecturer in public policy and education at the University of Western Australia. Um, Glenn Savage says, Largely, um, it's a mischaracterisation of the report and the model and just sort of became a popular thing in the media. But the basic idea of sector blind is that when the money gets allocated, you don't know or care if they're Catholic or Calathumpian or Scientology or exclusive brethren or state or, or anything. You just, you just give the money based upon the needs of the student. You are blind to the sector that the students are in. Now, is... Gonski sector-blind, and indeed is Gonski 2.0 designed to be sector-blind? Well, if
1: the, if it's now quite obvious. For many, many years, the Catholic Education Officers have had special deals, and they've gone along with it uh, because they were asked to by Gillard and others, and before that, Howard, of course. Uh, Can they be sector blind? Can any of these people be regarded as sector blind when there's been obvious favouritism?
0: Well, the answer is no. Um, It's just a very straight out no, and that's a no that's backed up not just by my opinion, but by um, the fact-checking people um, at RMIT who've been working with the ABC to find out, in fact, if Skronsky-to-reforms can be described as sector blind, and the answer is it's all basically empty rhetoric. So let's get back to basics. Let's get back to how much money goes to kids in Australia to educate them. How much money? Well, that's what is usually described as the schooling resource standard. And it's it basically an estimate of how much combined government funding, federal and state, each school needs to meet its students' educational needs. And the SRS consists of two basic components. There's what's called base load, and then there's what's called loadings. Now the baseload, the baseload funding comprises of a standard amount for each student and in 2018, I can tell you the numbers, in 2018 to educate a student in Australia the baseload funding is $10,953 for each primary school student for each year. So you've got about $11,000 to give an education to a child. In a secondary school, it's more. Obviously you have greater needs And that's $13,764 per year per student That's your base load SRS funding And these amounts um, obviously grow with inflation So they grow over time Now for non-government schools Technically the SRS takes into account The school's community capacity to contribute This means that if parents can afford high fees, their schools receive less base funding from the government. That's technically what's supposed to happen. Now, let's talk about the loadings. Now, the loadings are given to schools for six areas of potential disadvantage, okay? And these include remoteness. So if you're in a school that's... um, uh, I can't swear. He's a long way away from anyone, any, any of the central business districts in Australia. Then obviously to educate you out there is going to cost more money. So therefore you get loadings for that. If you have a disability, obviously there's loading attached to giving you the best education and how proficient you are in English. So refugee people who need to learn English as well as maths along the way. Obviously you need more resources to educate that one, that, 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 that student to, um, a, a, a proficient standard. There are other ones, but loadings are not adjusted for the school's capacity to contribute. Okay, so the loadings, you know, how disabled someone is, or in fact what their what, what their disability is, or how far away they are, is independent of the sector, whether it's independent Catholic or state. Now, ultimately, this SRS, the combination of base load plus loadings, determines how much government money a school should receive. It does not guarantee that a school will receive its full funding entitlement. In fact, it does not re- guarantee that a student will not receive more than its entitlement, which is in fact the question, the more important question, when it comes to private school funding in Australia. So the SRS is there. So we kind of know how much each student should get, and we kind of know in terms of SES, in terms of the school population, how much each, well, how much each school's parent community can. And so you can work that out from that. What's happened up until now in Australia is that private schools have been allocated over their SRS funding, over their SRS funding, and that is almost, in some cases, independent of any parent's contribution. Now, that's what's happening now. Now, will Gonski, too, change this? The answer is no. (laughs) It's just a straight-up no. It's empty rhetoric and the whole thing is starting to fall apart. Jim, you had something to say.
1: Yes, I think this is, that, that it's very, very interesting that uh, people are actually talking about this because on the other side the, uh, with the uh, think tanks, the Centre for Independent Studies is very miffed uh, and the private school uh, sector also, I believe, are very miffed that people who've actually got money and also got children are bypassing the private sector and going to state schools and not paying the kind of fees that they would be paying to the private sector. So what have they come up with? They are attacking what is in fact the the basis of a democratic society's education system. They are attacking the idea of free public education. And they have got out um, this article uh, by Blaise Joseph on the 7th of July, in which uh, she says that we all know the school stereotype government schools are full of disadvantaged students and struggling for money, while overfunded wealthy independent schools receive taxpayer money they will just spend on fancy swimming pools. And she claims that that's a myth. Because she then goes on to say, there are 538 government schools, What? this, this is uh, about one quarter at the most, with a majority of students from the top SES quarter. So what? So what?
0: So what? So what? Education is not a charity, Jane. No, no, no,
1: no. These people pay taxes. They have every right to send their children to a government school that they pay taxes for. Education is not free. We pay for it. I don't know about other listeners, but for most of my life I've paid taxes and I I regard it actually as a privilege to pay taxes if those taxes go to a government school which is free to all children. But we know that our government schools are being forced more and more to charge fees, particularly if people can afford it, because they are not genuinely free, because they're not being given the resources to be genuinely free. Mm So um, these people want to force governments to look at the income of parents who send their children to government schools and charge them fees. Now, this actually is the double taxation standard. They are asking people who send their children to public schools who have a certain income to pay double taxation. And if you're a taxation lawyer, this is the one One rule, you do not cross. You do not impose upon people double taxation. Uh, And for those people at private schools who claim that they're paying double taxation because they reject government schools, that principle does not apply
0: absolutely does not apply because all private schools in Australia with a religious basis are exempt from the anti-discrimination laws of this country. It's like getting into your Mercedes and getting off the tram.
1: And also the taxation. They have enormous taxation exemptions. Mm, So the schools themselves do not pay tax and they are, uh, as Robert says, exempt from discrimination. legislation. It's
0: just really, really simple. If you go out and buy yourself a Mercedes and you say, I'm never going to catch a tram, so therefore I'm not going to pay taxes for trams... Well, that doesn't work that way, because quite frankly, when you drive down the road in your Mercedes and you stop at a set of lights and I try to get into your car, that's actually breaking the law, because you've got your private car, you've paid for it, you're driving it, okay, on taxpayer-funded roads, and I'm sure lots of those people driving their Mercedes around very happy to pay taxes for the roads, I'm sure, so obviously paying lots of tax to those, those Mercedes drivers for roads, if I try and get in your car, I'm breaking the law, you can call the cops and put me in jail. I get it, I understand, and perfectly reasonable too, because a car is not a tram. They're completely different. A private school is not a public school. They if, are completely different. If I different. rock up to a private school's door and say, I demand to enrol my child in your school, the public school will say, no, you can't. And then if I sort of jump my child at the door and, and, and accompany and force them into the lessons and force them to have, the private school can call the cops on me. Of course they can. That's the whole point of a private school. It's exclusive by definition. It is exempt from the laws of anti-discrimination. And if don't. I can't afford it, I don't go. And do you know what? If you're going to have a private school, go for your life. You pay for it. Uh, pay for it. If you don't want to let me in your car at the lights, cool, makes sense to me, then uh, that's fine. But you know what? We all pay for the trams. And the tram driver can't, so we can find you if you don't pay your fare, but um, your tram driver can't prevent you from getting on the tram because it is, in fact, a public transport system. It is a public school.
1: But I find this very, very interesting because this means that there are people in Australia who believe that we should have a very segregated class system here, that those who have should not mix with those who have not. Uh, In fact, it's going back well into the 18th century Britain, uh, and I find it very, very sad indeed.
0: Well, it's more than that, Jean. It it, it ends up in what we can now see what's happening in America, and I have a very sad but I think very interesting article about education and where it's now arrived at in America, Mm -hmm. because the American education system, since they've introduced voucher schemes across various states, but not all states, Mm -hmm. has in fact resegregated. It's now resegregated. 63 years after Supreme Court ruling of Brown v. Board of Education, which was the landmark case in the United States that meant a child who was black could go to a school, a public school, full of white students. Since that case, many schools across the country have either remained segregated the entire time or, and this is the bit, have resegregated. segregated now, you're talking about wealth, okay? You're talking about rich people yeah, right. not not associating with poor people because you're segregating them based on income. In America, it's more complex and perhaps sadder.
1: The children of slaves.
0: The children of slaves are not allowed to go to the children of the masters in America anymore, and certainly in many places. Now, the journalist, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has told Fresh Air, which is an interesting website which I've got this information from, that when it comes to school segregation, Separate is never truly equal. Now the idea is, in terms of, what's the argument in terms of apartheid, if you keep the blacks and whites apart, then the blacks will get the equal resource into the whites, it's just they happen to be apart. But there has never been a moment in history, in the history of America, where black people, have, who have been isolated from white people, have gotten the same resources. Mm. They often don't have the same level of instruction. They don't have the same strong principles and they don't have the same technology to use in, in the education system.
1: Betty DeVos says that this was a wonderful example when they set up a black university oh. of choice. Yeah. That this was where, this was, you know, what private enterprise and choice and everything that she's promoting in the United States should go.
0: Well, a New York Times reporter, um, Hannah Jones, who was black, and her daughter, uh, Nadia. She sent her child, Nadja, to the neighbourhood school and she said it was a moral issue for her. It's important to understand that the inequality we see, the school segregation, is both structural, it's systemic, but it's also upheld by individual choices. As long as an individual parent continues to make choices that only benefit their own children, we're not going to see change. Mm-hmm. Hannah Jones adds that her daughter is thriving in school. I know she's learning a lot, she says. I think she's making her a good citizen. Is teaching her that children who have less resources than her are not any less intelligent than her or not any less worthy than her. And what you're talking about, Jean, is the opposite. Because that children who aren't as wealthy uh, obviously aren't as intelligent. <laughs> you know, it, these, are, these, these are things that are behind what Jean is talking about here in Australia.
1: Oh, no. When I said that I was concerned that we were reverting to meritocracy, the people, um, in power and with wealth, do realise that there are some people in the uh, lower orders who are intelligent, but it's important that they become their servants. (laughs) So they pick out the bright ones and they educate them to become the servants of the wealthy. And that's why I said last week, I think, that when you went to a selective high school, and you were part of what was going to be the meritocracy. At a certain point, when you went to university, you had to make up your mind whether you were going to be a servant for the wealthy or a servant of those who were less advantaged than yourself.
0: And that's very interesting because Nicole yeah. Hannah-Jones says, she says, one of the things I've done in my work is to kind of show the hypocrisy of progressive people They mm-hmm. say so they believe that inequality exists. But when it comes to their individual choices about where they're going to live and where they're going to send their children, they make very different decisions. And she I just didn't want to do that. So for me, it was a matter of needing to live my values and not be someone who contributed to the inequality that I write about, she said. She said, the original mission of public schools and is this understanding that no matter where you come from, you will go into the doors of a school and every child will receive the same education. I'll say that again, no matter where you come from, when you go into the doors of a school, every child will receive the same education. No, she says, my daughter's not going to get an education that she would have got if she paid $40,000 a year in a private school tuition. But she says that's kind of the whole point of public schools. And she says this, it always feels weird when I say as a parent because a lot of other parents look at you like you been maybe not a good parent. I don't think she's deserving more than other kids. I just don't. I think that we can't say that school is not good enough for my child and then sustain the system as a whole. I think that's just morally wrong. It's not good enough for my child. Then why are we putting children in the schools that aren't good enough for your child? And that's what I keep saying over and over again. And Melbourne is this hotbed of exactly this. I want to say that again because she expresses it so clearly. She says, if there is a school of which you say, that school is not good enough for my child, then you are the problem. She says, that's morally wrong. If it's not good enough for your child, then why are you putting any children there? Why would you allow any child to be put there? Which is, in fact, the solution they have in Finland. If a school is not good enough for your child, what do you do? You get together with the other parents and agree with you, and you do something about it. You speak to your local politician, you speak to your local school board, you speak to the teachers, you say, this is not good enough. We must do something because this school is not good enough for my child. We will fix it. In, in Australia, and indeed in America, as soon as you get a voucher system, if the school's not good enough for your child, you just avoid it. You cross, literally, you cross the other side of the street. Yes, you recognise the inequality, but you cross the street to avoid it.
1: I'm reminded here of um, a very interesting story of the Good Samaritan Mm -hmm. and the people who walked by on the other side. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, here we are. We're standing on our moral soapboxes here on the Defence of Government Schools program, as we often do. But I think these principles are worth fighting for, which is why we fight. We fight today. We fight tomorrow. We fight yesterday. And we'll be filing again next week when we're back on the airs. Back on the airs on 3CR 855 and the And Island podcast if you want to contact us. You can get hold of us, of course, at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week when the fight continues, it's bye for now.
1: Bye for now. <laughs>
2: I'm standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge. Says Joe, but I'm dead. Says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. on to organize, went on to organize. From Sandy, go up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there. Night alive as you and me, says I. But Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he.